What happens when your worst fear becomes your reality? Hi, I'm Brent Cassidy. Welcome to the Nightmare Success In and Out podcast, where we explore how to overcome your fears and nightmares and set yourself free. We're going to be exploring this topic with guys that was in Leavenworth with and others who survived their own nightmare. These stories can be inspiring, sometimes sad. There's some humor, but hopefully you can come away with a nugget of something that'll help you knock down some of the prisons you built up in your own mind. Okay, Nightmare Success listeners, we are back. And man, am I excited about this guest. Because, you know, sometimes you read stuff and you think, man, I wish I could interview that guy. Well, Mike Morosky, I've got to big, give big shout out to him. Uh, he was a uh, guest on the show probably three or four episodes ago. And we were talking a couple Saturdays ago and, and said, hey, Brent, you, you had you to read up on Jeff Grant. And he gave me... Uh, place to go look for him and then he gave me his contact information and I was reading his New Yorker article and I was like my gosh I've got to talk to this guy um, what he's been able to do and what his story is should probably be a book and a movie but give you a little bit of background about Jeff Grant he uh, he was a very successful real estate attorney in New York and he had a I think it was a sport injury and I, I've, I've been out of the different articles I think it was like an Achilles tendon tear but he got addicted to uh, prescription opioids and um, it, that read, ran him into uh, things that he probably wouldn't have done in his life but uh, his he kind of went on to live in the wild side there in the markets and everything else but um, he ended up serving 14 months in federal prison uh, for a white-collar crime. It was a small business loan fraud uh, that he committed in 2001. And then just started his own reentry, earning a Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York, majoring in social ethics. After graduate, graduating from uh, Divinity School, Jeff was called to serve as uh, inner-city church in Bridgeport, Connecticut, as an associate minister, director of prison ministries, then he co-founded Progressive Prison Ministries, and it's the first of its kind. It's a ministry dedicated to serving people, navigating the white-collar criminal justice system. And he has a support group for white-collar people that uh, are going through the, the nightmare of their life. And uh, I was lucky enough to be a part of that last night. Uh, it's a Monday night uh, Zoom call, and it's just fantastic. It, it's Jeff and I were just talking before this started. It's 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 a one of its kind. You feel, you know, the empathy and the help and the 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 support that you're looking for, and it, it's just uh, fantastic that Jeff is using his journey of his experiences and being able to help people out. And you know, we had some people that were on for. Uh, that had been, you know, out for 12 years. And we had somebody that was speaking that had been out for, you know, six weeks or six months. You know, it was, it was just a great combination of a, uh, a great group. So before we get into all that, I want to welcome our uh, sponsor in, who is uh, Auto Plaza Direct. You know, who likes spending a couple of weekends walking car lots looking for a car? Then you spend like four to five hours in the dealership to buy a car it's kind of like going to a trip to the dentist. Well, there's a better way. Take away all that pain and hassle of getting a car. It's called Auto Plaza Direct. They are your personal car concierge. Just tell them the car you want, 
what you can pay, and they'll go find that car for you. They'll negotiate your best price, and they'll deliver that car to you. They also offer warranties and financing, full service. Go to autoplazadirect.com to get started with your personal car concierge. The new hassle-free way, the car buying experience you deserve, Direct. Tell them Brent from Nightmare Success sent you. And uh, I had a great experience. Uh, I thought I was down and, and done with getting my truck. And uh, Don Davis figured out a way to get the deal done. So I am a personal client that appreciates the help of Autoplaza Direct. So everybody, Jeff, Grant, welcome in. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Brent. I, I'm you know, having having been with you uh, last night on Zoom and having you attend the uh, White Collar Sport Group meeting, it just feels like just a continuation of that conversation. So I'm I'm really I'm really happy about it. Well, I love it, and I'm glad you made the time. I know um, you're a busy man, and you're doing, uh, and you just moved, and so you're. I, I think you everything you do is like I get this action feel from you. You know, you don't sit around and wait on things. I was curious reading through all the stuff, Jeff, that you've gone through and, and the different steps you took both before you had your nightmare happen to you and after growing up as a kid did, what was that like? I mean, were you the same kind of, what, what was happening in your world as a kid? I, I think of all the interviews I've ever done, you're the first one who's wanted to go all the way back to like the childhood trauma stuff. Um, and actually, to me, it's really an interesting story, although it's not really my story as much as it is a cultural story. Yeah. Because I was a kid, I grew up on the South Shore of Long Island, and I was <clears throat> part of this kind of exodus out of uh, Brooklyn that um, Jews did back then in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. And our, our parents were all kind of the same in a way. You know, they, they, they were in a, in a strange way. They, they weren't Holocaust deniers. It just never got discussed. You know, I was only born... Uh, nine years after the end of World War II, mm -hmm. all of that um, was never discussed with us at all. It's it interesting a, that it wasn't. Do you think there no, was a reason? What it was? It was it a direct, you know, decision that that's just not something that we're going to go down that path? Um, I think that um, for you know cultural Jews, really non or, or, or Jews who had limited uh, um, observance. Mm -hmm which was most of, uh, uh, of kind of what Long Island was. Um, it was really about a new lifestyle. It was the swing in 60s. My parents were, were kind of like, um, uh, my, my father was like uh, Matt Helm. Yeah. And, my, and my mother was like, my mother looked exactly like uh, Connie Stevens. Beautiful, beautiful yeah. woman. And um, they just, wanted to put whatever that whole lifestyle behind them. And so we all moved uh, in mass to these uh, newly created towns out in Long Island that were kind of dredged up mm -hmm. literally from, from the, from the great South Bay and the East Bay. And we were the first people who lived there. I mean, we were, there were sand dunes and the, the houses were going up like, uh, like dinosaurs. 
you know, rising from the sand. And uh, we grew up pretty much without parents. Mm. You know, we grew up, our parents did not raise us. You were out and about with, yeah, and we with your friends. Right, with our friends. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a, in some ways it was a simpler world, you know, kind of yeah. ride bikes, you leave in the morning and you come home late at night. But on the other hand, without parental supervision, it didn't take, we really had to figure out our own ethics and what our own right and wrong was. And then when we got to be about 13 years old, um, we found our parents' liquor cabinets. And and um, I remember with my friends in Merrick, Long Island, which is where I uh, grew up, we would um, we would find a, a vodka bottle um, in one of our parents' uh, um, uh, liquor cabinets. And then like five of us would ride our bikes up to the Dairy Barn store, which was a double drive-through deli, which was, uh, Dairy Barn was all over Long Island. Yeah. And we would get five or six containers of Tropicana orange juice and then mix it drive all back, <laughs> mix it all up into screwdrivers <clears throat> and then sit you know, on the basketball court at dusk and get drunk. Yeah. I tell this story to almost anybody who grew up in Long Island and maybe any suburb. I don't know. Yeah. But, but everybody relates right away. Like, of course. And this is kind of what it was. You know, it was a ethically challenged time in a lot of ways where the, the people who were kind of uh, most fortunate had a, uh, a more solid family structure. Yeah. I wasn't like that. Most of my friends weren't. And I kind of rode the line between uh, being in the AP classes with the smart kids. Yeah. But I was a, you know, I was a, a cool kid hanging out in the parking lot with my friend. Do you have siblings, and Jeff? The, I, I do. Yeah. I have a younger brother and a younger sister. So you were the oldest and, out of the bunch of, of all this that was going on at that time. Yeah. I, I was the oldest. And, um, so um, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, throughout the whole area, throughout the whole, my whole um, upbringing, a, a lot of uh, drinking and drug abuse and mental illness and all, all kinds of things like that. It manifested in different families in different ways. Um, but mine ultimately was, uh, you know, just a, a path that um, I didn't really ever expect to get free from. I don't know that I've gotten free from it now. <laughs> I, I really don't. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting, though. I mean, you bring that up, and you, you, it's kind of sounds like a free-flowing society, basically. And then you end up being uh, this kid that gets into, um, you know, law school and then law. And how, how did all that – how did you take those steps out from where you were? Um, <clears throat> I really didn't know any other way. I mean, there, there, there was never really anything else I considered. You know, I went to college, partied my way through college. Most people do, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, had an awakening at some point in college that um, I better do well enough. And I, I knew I wanted to go to law school, although I don't know that it was for any reason other than having watched Judge for the Defense on TV. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, but... Uh, I did go straight into law school and um, the, uh, my, my, my uh, drinking and drug abuse never, I mean, it abated. I mean, it didn't kind of get in the way of what I 
wanted to accomplish, but it certainly, there were consequences all along the way yeah. that had I been more aware of, I probably could have taken more remedial action, you know, jobs I lost and relationships that. Did you I recognize lost. it, Jeff, at that time? Cause you, cause you, t- you talk about it and that it was kind of always around, you know, and then you had the, you know, later on had the opioid addiction deal. Was it just kind of always in your orbit? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. In, in varying degrees. I mean, I, uh, Certainly, uh, for most of my friends, say from high school and college, um, um, they stopped partying before I did. Yeah, and then and then for and then I would uh, I would kind of drink or, or drug in uh, in isolation. It wasn't a social thing so much anymore. Because you but were kind I, of in a social world of you know going from you know college to law school to being yeah, an attorney yeah. and having you know those after our drinks and clients and all that kind of stuff, you, you were around it. I mean, there was no, no escaping the environment. Yeah, it was all, it was all part of that. I mean, before, um, before I, uh, I uh, tore my Achilles tendon and, um, and had the surgery. So I was right then, about that. There was, the oh, Achilles you, were right. tendon. Okay. you were definitely right. You're hundred percent okay. right. But before that happened in 1992, I had been, pretty sober for a, for a pretty extended period. I wouldn't say I was a saint, right. but I, I certainly understood that I had to kind of like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I had to get my shit together uh-huh. and, um, and I did. And, and uh, the, the positive consequences was that, that I was able to move my law firm from New York up to uh, Westchester, where we had moved at that point into uh, we had moved to Rye, and I was raising uh, well, we were raising our our children there, and so I was a more attentive dad. I was uh, able to go to you know school plays and whatever there was, but um, in '92 when I had ruptured the Achilles tendon, uh, I went down on the basketball court, and. Um, called an orthopedist friend who was at the local hospital in uh, Port Chester, I think. And, um, and I told him that he couldn't touch me unless he gave me a script of 40 Demerol. And um, I have no idea where that came from. Mm. That wasn't, there was, there was no fluidity between the life I would live, was living the few years before that. And that it was like automatic, the rules are suspended. Brief, yeah. Now yeah. I can do this. Green this light. is what I want. Yeah. Yep. And he did. And, and I think, you know, let's go back a little bit because at that time, um, you had on your business world, tremendous success. I mean, you yeah. were a, a guy in demand attorney that uh, took no prisoners and, um, there was the competitive game that you were winning in an arena that is very, and it's like gladiator school where you were in New York and Manhattan and real estate and that it was that in it was that itself intoxicating for you? Oh, sure. I mean, it was, it was, a, um, I, I'd later been diagnosed with, uh, you know, bipolar disorder and I understood that I was later that I was self-medicating through, yeah. through a lot of that, yeah. but all of that, you know, that go, go, um, real estate and syndication work and, yeah. uh, all 
that I was doing, um, <clears throat> it was great for my disposition and great for my intellect, excuse me. <clears throat> but probably the worst thing that I could have done for my bipolar disorder. Sure. Because it was just, it was so late nights and stress and irregular, and and I didn't really realize how um, how much it was eroding my uh, you know my ability just to live kind of a a normal life. Mm-hmm. And as the firm grew, and because um, you had like twenty and, plus people as attorneys in there, right? It was a pretty good size. Of- Pretty good size I, law I, firm. I had I had twenty employees of my own, yeah. but I was also general counsel to a couple of large real estate companies outside general counsel. Yeah. So I was managing their lawyering, and they had lawyers for everything. They had tax lawyers and mm-hmm. or tenant lawyers, and and so I was the paymaster. You know, all the bills came to me, and I and and I was a real dyed in the wool general counsel, which I. I, I, I uh, amazingly, I am again. Yeah. But, um, um, I love, you know, I loved it. I loved being right at the center and, and kind of being the uh, consigliere to, uh, really wealthy people and their families, you know, uh, uh wealthy, uh, uh, real estate families yeah. who, they were living on the edge too. I mean, sure, were, I think that's you know, what's fascinating, though. You know, you you were in that world with people who were making things happen. You were making things happen. Uh, you know, I guess that's also when you know the the fall is is so much more dramatic. I think a lot of times for people who had all that going on in the world, and and then all of a sudden you are in this you know spiral of. I always say that my experience was is when I when I started going through it, it felt like I was falling into a deep hole, and I could, I thought I could grab the edges, and the edges just kept moving out further and further, and I just kept falling yeah. further down. And you know, when when this happened for you with uh, the injury, and you had all this other stuff going on in your world, uh, kids, wife, business, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being in the world of the arena you wanted to be in. Um, when you started sliding down that Demerol path, did did it feel like you were on a slide, or did you just think I'm coping? Um, I I I I definitely knew that this was maladaptive behavior. There's yeah. no doubt about it. But I don't. I didn't care. Yeah. You know. Uh, it, it, and and. The, you know the, the the benchmarks, the objective benchmarks were they were all clear. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, but I, I wanted my fix, and you know, as my as my um, as my drug of choice kind of shifted from Demerol to uh, OxyContin, and um, I was a uh, an early victim of the opioid um uh crisis mm-hmm. although I, you know I, I take care not to ever really characterize myself as a victim but certainly uh um if you, if you look at the uh the availability and the doctors who were writing and um yeah there were, um it, it's it's hard to divorce myself from from that narrative you know I, i've watched uh, um documentaries and uh, and i've watched um it's been a um, lot on it that's for sure. A lot on it. And, you know, it's clear that I was caught up in the midst of it. 
and there was no way out. I mean, because even back then there was no, yeah, there there were very few resources for people who were going through that. Yeah, they didn't recognize it, you know, at, at the scale that we've come to recognize it since. But um, there was a tipping point at some point where um, things were not getting better; they were getting worse. And um, I didn't. And my, the physical manifestations were huge. I mean, I'd blown up to two hundred eighty-five pounds. Mm. I, I looked like a guy who had a drug addiction, you know, my, just my, my pallor, my, uh, my, I was uh, erratic. Did your kids or wife think that anything, or they sit you down and say, Hey dad or husband, what's going on? No, no. And I don't, I don't blame them. For no, that, no, I'm know? not saying that it was any blame. I'm just yeah. walking around no. in that world. It, you know, you might not even notice it as much uh, because you're around no. it all the time. Yeah, I'm. I it's kind of shocking now, you know, that that nobody that nobody. Well, actually, here's here's what happened. So, um, just to like jump ahead, and then we can kind of sure. get back. Um, when I finally went to rehab, and I was sitting in, uh, um. Uh, I was in, uh, on, uh, I think, still on 15 or 30 minute checks. So, you know, you're in checks in these places so that you don't kill yourself. Mm-hmm. And, or, or, or at least so they're not liable if you kill yourself. Yeah. Um, our best friends came to visit um, from New Jersey. And uh, I was in New Canaan, Connecticut at Silver Hill at the time. And I was crying. You know, my whole life had just come tumbling down. And, and I said to them, um, I don't understand. You know, we've been best friends for 20 years. Um, why, why didn't you ever tell me that you saw me, you know, doing all this? You saw me sliding down. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and they said, they said, Jeffrey, we must have told you a hundred times. Mm-hmm. And I never heard one of them. Probably didn't want to hear it. I did not want to hear it. And, yeah. and I don't recall to this day, I don't recall once, but they were adamant. They, so, yeah. you know, it, it's hard to know what's real or what's revisionist. Sure. You I'm know? sure some or, of it's very blurry. But I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious, though, Jeff, how did you arrive there? Because, you know, rehab has so many different paths. And I think well, the interesting part of your story is, is you, you end up there and get sober, and then all the, the bricks fall on you on the criminal side, it had to be, you know, it was like a one, two step punch almost. Well, what had happened was that the day came that I couldn't um, make my payroll anymore. And um, which should not have come as a surprise, but of course I was not paying attention at all. And um, I instructed my office manager to uh, borrow money from the client uh, escrow fund. Mm -hmm. And, um, which was insane because that's the end, that's the end yeah, of the ride. That's a nuclear button push. Right. Right. That, right. That, and, but, I, um, I wasn't, I, I just wasn't sober enough to, to realize that. And I did it and did it a few other times. And the investigation started not long thereafter. Um, and I, uh, I defended myself, hired an ethics lawyer and that kind of like, was sliding downward, even as my use of uh, 
OxyContin was increasing. Mm. Um, and then 9-11 came. And that rocked me, probably because I knew that I was already bottoming out. Yeah. And, it, and it felt like the end of the world. That sure. felt like the end of the world for a lot of people. Yeah. But, but in um, one fell swoop of one day. Yeah. So um, about two months later, the, um, the SBA was advertising disaster loans for uh, businesses that had been directly affected by um, 9-11. And, I, and my business in Westchester County was, it was in one of the counties that was directly abutting New York City. So my business was um, was uh, in the zone where I, I could have been approved. I called them up. In fact, they told me that they would approve me. It was pretty easy to get the money. Um, they, um, Despite the fact that they told me that they would approve me in filling out the actual application, I lied and said I had an office that was about a block from ground zero. Um, that I did was, read that you were borrowing a conference room there, so there was some kind of maybe way that you played that in your mind. Um, I, the, the, I think the real point there was that, one, yes, I had conference facilities at that location, and it was on my letterhead yeah. as my Manhattan office, yeah. but I had never, but I, it was relatively new that in that location, and I had never used it. So there was no yeah. economic impact whatsoever on me or my firm, the fact that we were unable to use that location. Right, right. But, but you can just see that the rationale was... At that time period, yeah. yeah. Um, and I really did think it was the end of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, they, they did fund me uh, $247,000. So the wire fraud portion of it was the lie. The money laundering portion of it was that I had put a lot of the um, the expenses for the firm on my personal credit cards at that point. And when the money came in, when I tell you in a, in a fit of mania, I went literally to each bank and paid off those credit cards the day the money cleared. It was as if I, were, I couldn't stop myself. Mm -hmm. And I knew better. I understood what that money was for operating and, and not for, uh, you know, payments of antecedent debt. But um, I did things I never would have let a client do. Yeah. And I was crazy. So I did it. And so the, taking the money from operating and transferring it to myself and paying my personal credit card, that was fundamentally the money, the money laundering. So, um, not long thereafter, um, the um, the ethics case, the grievance case, had progressed to the point where um, it was clear I was going to lose my law license. And I called my ethics lawyer, and he told me the jig was up. That was it. And I told him, please call them up, tell them I'm resigning my law license today. Um, and then I, uh, I went to one of my doctors. I got one last prescription, filled it. And after my family went to sleep that night, I took the entire bottle of pills. And Intending to, to kill yourself. I, I tried. Yeah. I tried. You know, I, I, um, th that kind of stuff brings hair up on my arms because, you know, uh, hitting rock bottom like that is, is a moment where people either um, stay 
and get worse or it's a new beginning of how do I climb out? And from your story, I mean, it's, it's obvious that what happens after that, but uh, it's because it, I had that too. I had a rock bottom moment where, and, and, yeah. and, and my, my thought too was I, I had a, where it really, you know, it was, it was the night before I was going down to, to, to do the plea. And my problem was Jeff, as I had never thought about what, because we'd been fighting the whole fight. You go to bed with it, wake up with it. I never thought, wait a minute, I'm going to go to prison. How how do yeah. I do that? And how do I live the rest of my life as an ex-felon? And I st- you know, started feeling bad for myself. And But I caught myself you know, in the fact that, uh, wow, this would be the worst way that I could ever be seen by my kids and my wife. And you know, I'm a glass-half-full guy. And, and it, it was, I remember the moment so vividly. And I know uh, by kind of reading through your story that had to have been a, a moment for you of, of what happened. Well, I, I think at that point I was way more of a coward than you were, <laughs> but um, it, it didn't even really feel that rational, you know, like, uh, because I, I was, I was stoned, yeah. you know, I wanted yeah. to be stoned and, and I mean the concept of, of killing myself at that point, I probably, um, my guess is over the course of my life at that point, I would think I was 45 years old. Mm-hmm. I probably um, subconsciously tried to kill myself a hundred times. Sure, sure. You know, you know the just how close to the edge can I get? Mm-hmm. And uh, in all kinds of different ways. Yeah, playing in the gray area is playing with yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, over the next few days, um, um, I detoxed. I detoxed myself again. That wasn't a strain, although this was more um, more um, drugs than I'd ever taken. Um, I detoxed myself hundreds of times. Mm-hmm. You know, like every weekend. You know, I promised myself I'd never do it again. I'd go through the sweats. I'd go through whatever. Yeah. During that whole ten years, and then two days later. I have to go get more. Right. So um, I detoxed over the next couple of days and then um, called up Silver Hill and um, they had a bed for me after, after a couple of days. And, um, and I went there and it was really a life altering experience. Um, not only was it the first time that I was going to be put on proper bipolar meds, mm-hmm. But is that a, um, at that time, did you were you even diagnosed that as being bipolar? I don't think so. Yeah, so you didn't even know. Not, no, not formally. Right. I, mean, I may have suspected it on some level, sure. and certainly the people who worked for me suspected it because yeah. they they knew I was on a roller coaster every day. Yeah, but um, it, you know, it was a, it you know, it was kind of the the shift from a transactional way of life to a transformative way of life. Mm. I didn't have a career. Yeah. I didn't have a career anymore. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I was about, we were going to have to sell our home. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what kind of uh, assets I would have. I didn't know anything. Um, But I threw myself into recovery heavily. Mm -hmm. Um, After seven weeks at Silver Hill, I attended my first AA meeting. And um, I started going to like three AA meetings a day. Um, pretty soon thereafter, um, we had to move. We had to sell the house, and um, I moved 
our, our family moved from Rye, which is a beautiful uh, um, community. Um, um, but we moved six miles away to Greenwich, Connecticut, mm-hmm. which is, uh, of course, where everybody who loses their job and has no money moves to is Greenwich, Connecticut. But that's where my AA meetings were. What did that and feel so, like uh, for you, the family, you know, making that move? Um, really frightening. Um, you know, I, I didn't know if I could pay the rent. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anything. I, um, um, you know, we drove around uh, and it was kind of a worst case scenario, best case scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we wound up somewhere in the middle. Things were not good with, uh, 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 probably needless to say, things were not good with my uh, my now ex-wife. Mm-hmm. I'm sure felt betrayed and didn't understand. Right. Uh, my, my kids were frightened. Um, and um, I, I wasn't really thinking about them too much. I was working on my own recovery. Being sober. Yeah. Yep. And what and what I was told in AA was, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself first. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't realize um, how that meant I was going to have to abandon my family for a while mm-hmm. in order to work on myself sufficiently so that I could I could be there. And um, and I did that. Um, and I took the AA, you know, you know the. You know, I, I hate to sound uh, too cliche, but duck to water. Mm-hmm. I um, I threw myself in, and um, part of it was just because I had nowhere else to go. Right, and that was a big but support all, system for you. Yeah, yeah, and but also it was resonating with me. Sure, you know? there was something authentic there, that spiritually authentic, that um, I knew I felt when I was young, when I was 12 years old or so, but in the intervening 30 some odd years had somehow been corrupted by, by family and life and career. And, and now I'm, I was kind of like back in a, in a place where I, uh, um, I felt, um, I felt seen or at least I felt welcome. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because I, I, you know, I, was able to get into the RDEP program. Uh, you get a year off, and that's the reason why I wanted in was because you get a year off. Mm-hmm. But I, it's it's rational behavioral therapy, um, and I was going in thinking that's you know all good and everything. But I'm I'm wanting my year off, and and I really started understanding that there's a lot to if you really get deep into those type of things, understanding. And I almost think that. I almost think I think that something like that should be taught in the you know middle school uh, high schools for kids to be able to understand what they're doing and how they're doing it why they're doing it um, but I got a lot more out of it than I certainly thought I would when I got in for sure yeah so <clears throat> I was um literally going to a meetings uh three times a day. And not going home in between. Those were my instructions by my sponsor. Don't go home is death. Don't mm-hmm. go home. Don't go into. Don't get into the covers. Mm-hmm. And um, after about twenty months of sobriety, I got a call from um, a uh, um, federal agent, two of them actually, on the phone with me, who told me there was a warrant out for my arrest in connection with the uh, the SBA loan 
um, and my um, and my and my fraudulent statements. And uh, this was now pretty still in the bubble around 9/11. And um, they gave me two weeks to turn myself in, and I hired a lawyer. And I went down to uh, on 500 Pearl Street, which was in downtown Manhattan, mm-hmm. and it was like a war zone down there. Still with uh, checkpoints and and the military and yeah and and uh, I really did feel like the worst person in the world. It was terrible, but I turned myself into the with my with my lawyer's assistant turned myself into the marshals in the courthouse, and they put me in a holding cell below the courthouse probably for four or five hours in there somewhere, um, and then went upstairs. And I got arraigned. Um, What's your released. thoughts, Jeff? Because you're now a sober man going through the steps and then you are arrested and there's no other feeling like that than when you, when you are going through that process. What, what was going through your mind? Um, it, 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 it wasn't negative. You know, at, at that point, I was viewing everything as a consequence of my behavior and a part of my recovery. Like a next step. This yeah, absolutely. Almost like an inevitable next step. Yeah. And and um they treated me with respect and dignity. Mm-hmm. I think that um I think that most of the court personnel and certainly the the the, um, the judge, everyone, um I, I, I project that they looked at me as someone, you know, um in the legal profession that but for the grace of God go I kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um and then they they sent me home, and where I had to wait two more years to get sentenced and then report to to a prison. And in that two years, my uh, my ex wife had kicked me out, and um, I met a woman in AA. Well, that's not a surprise, probably. It's kind of the way it works in a way. <laughs> right, I've heard that one. Who who, who I'm married to now, and um, but um. So she went through all that with you then. Uh, the, she went through. She went through. Yeah. Yep. And and I I I I had separated from my wife, and she separated from her from her husband, and we clung to one another. Mm-hmm. And uh, and um, it was kind of a beautiful experience in the midst of uh, all of this chaos. So two. Um, I mean, two years is a long time to wait. I mean, I I. I identify with you with that because I was three years of, of uh, being mm-hmm. indicted and that's that's a weird way to live also you know you were also going through all your steps of recovery but just living that way knowing you know th- that it's probably not good as as the end result and so when you finally get to that sentencing Jeff are you knowing have an idea what you're going to be looking at uh as far as your plea goes and sentencing. yeah, I, um, yeah, I, th- I think my guideline range was like 21 to 27 months. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, but for the fact that it was a nine 11 disaster loan, I, I might've had a shot at, uh, probation, probation yeah. non-custodial, but there was no way in that climate that they were yeah, going to do that. An example out of that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and, and I, I was, I was, third person sentenced in the Southern district 
for uh, a disaster loan um, fraud. And, you know, it's, it's really remarkable because it's been, <clears throat> you know, it's been uh, 17 or 18 years. Wow. Yeah. Most of the time I, I told the story, nobody was interested in the SBA disaster loan aspect of it. It just wasn't sexy. Nobody <laughs> could ever relate. Yeah. Now the pandemic's come, come along, and of course it's like exactly. everybody relates. Yeah, the PPP and all. Everybody, that stuff. oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> exactly. In fact, I, I wrote an I wrote an article for Entrepreneur um, at the very beginning of the pandemic, and uh, it, it was called "I Went to Prison for SBA Loan Fraud: you know, Seven Things to Know When You're Taking Disaster Loan Money," and it was the fourth most viewed article wow. in oh, Entrepreneur, Entrepreneur for the year. Wow. Because it was so current, um, right on know, top of current. Yeah. Yeah. It was so relevant. Um, and it's crazy for all of those years. Yeah. Nobody even knew what I was talking about. Yeah. It over, was just, over 10 plus years. It, yeah. Yeah. It was an asterisk. Nobody knew. No mm -hmm. footnote. Isn't that something? <laughs> so, so I, um, I did get a downward variant mostly because of the work that I did in AA and recovery and yeah. having been almost four years sober at that time. Yeah. And um, I, I felt that the sentence was warranted. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I wasn't offended by, by, um, by give, having given an 18 month sentence. I was prepared and I thought it was, I thought it was fair. Yeah. I, I really did. So um, what I didn't know was that I would get designated to a low instead of a camp. And that was just happenstance. You know, that was just no beds available in the camp on the day I was designated. Yeah, no, I've heard that before. And that that's because um, you, you don't think that that's the way it is. And I know one of the things that you do now is really help walk people through those type of things because attorneys don't really know once that person pleads guilty, they, they have no idea what happens after that and how you survive that. But, um, you know, I, I was at Leavenworth and um, – I think it was like in 85 or 90, they were trying to get designated as a low. And so they created it as a low. They put the fencing up and the barbed wire and the sally port yeah. and everything. And then they didn't designate it. So we, we were living at Leavenworth as a low, but it was a camp. Now you could go in and out because it was a camp to your work assignments or whatever beyond the fence. But yeah. it had, I think there's only like three camps that have fences and the rest of them don't. But uh, I, I had, I had actually forgotten, Jeff, that you were at a low. I, until and you said that, I, I, I did read that, but I had forgotten that. Of, of course, it was frightening going in because I, I had to do some, a lot of reading quickly on what a low was. Yeah, it's a lot different. <clears throat> but... Because you know, one of the things we're talking about lows and camps. This two, this is two ex felons talking about prison camps and 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 lows, but they. You have you have designated moves in a low and a medium and a maximum, meaning that on the hour you have like ten minutes to move and you have to be in that place or you get stuck in the other place and that in a lifestyle that's a big deal because I you know I talk to people you know my uh, bunkmate for a year was had come from a low and he said it's just so different not to have those designated moves like that because it, it, yeah. your, your mind is thinking on the hour and you don't do that in camp at all. Yeah. The, the, the controlled movement thing is, is um, uh, definitely freaked me out for a while. The, 
there, there were other aspects um, that um, that were um, not I, that I didn't that I, I I really didn't expect that, that I, I I had to learn a lot about that would have been different in the camp and, yeah. and, and so um, you know as you said in the control movement they open the compound and then you have ten minutes to move across from one place to another and but if you get if you get caught in the compound while um, when, when when they when they when they lock it up, uh, they'll send you to the shoe. Right. And or they'll send you to the head lieutenant's office, and then it's his choice whether or not and he'll send you they, to the shoe. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it kind of depends upon the circumstances. Yeah. It, you know, not, not everybody who's caught in the compound goes to the shoe. Yeah. But um, it's a nuance I really didn't want to know anything about. Right. And. Because your and, sentence definitely applied you to camp. I mean, really, it's people that are doing ten plus or ten less uh, years is are camp eligible, but it's points. You know, I, I, on the on the white collar support group last night, the one that you joined in, mm-hmm. um, one of the um, we, we had three new, three new people come on last night, um, and we we've had seven hundred participants, and typically there's anywhere from one to three new people every week. Mm-hmm maybe somewhere between 25 and 40 people on, on, on the zoom call. Every right. Day. But so often you'll hear someone say, as someone did say last night, they'll say going to prison was the best thing that could have happened to me. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, I think that that's probably revisionist thinking mm-hmm. that, it might be something that I needed right. and within the theme of this show, you know, the thing that, that I was most afraid of turned out to be the best thing for me. Yeah. But I think that if anybody thinks about it hard enough to think that going to prison is the best thing that ever happened to you, they're in some way what they're deceiving themselves. Right. You know, needed a correction for sure. <laughs> right. You, you won't ever hear me say that coming out of my mouth, Jeff. <laughs> but, and, I, and I understand some people that, that uh, their life changes and they, they gather, you know, I've had, you know, so many different people on, you know, while they're in the hole and they're, you know, they, they become somebody and, and take a different path. But um, man, it's a big statement. Yeah. And, and but, but, I, but I get it because, in a way, people people want to reduce these things down. It's hard to do. It's hard to make it black and white. Well, it's it's hard to do the amount of work it really takes to um, to go through this kind of a transformative experience. And and in my case, um, as you know, um, you know, I'll just kind of like leave the prison story behind because my, my prison inside prison story wasn't that unique other than, well, I, but I, I, I do want to, I do want to say that what, how did you, cause you have to have strategies when you go into prison. What, how yeah. did, how did you tackle prison? Like how, how, I know you walked a lot. You were at locked 3,500 miles and I, I totally identify uh, with that. I probably did six to eight miles a, a day. How did you live your life in prison? Um, I, I, I had I had a very simple philosophy or, or, or game plan going in, and that was that I knew I would be there for about a year, mm-hmm. roughly, 
And I wanted to accomplish one great thing for each of my, for mind, body, and spirit during that year. Yeah. And I wasn't quite sure exactly what that was, but once I, I, I had the goal set that I knew I had to divide it up into little pieces. And mm-hmm. so every day I would have to focus on something for my mind, something for my body and something for my spirit. And, and so for, um, great strategy, by so the way, for, I mean, you think, I yeah. think you just gave a big tip there for not just people in prison, but trying to live your life. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or, or baking a cake. It's yeah. pretty much the same. No matter what you gotta, you gotta, you gotta organize ingredients. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, for my mind, um, I, um, I, I took guitar lessons mm-hmm. and, um, I took theory, I took guitar. Yeah. I played a little bit of guitar when I was a kid and I've been playing continuously a little bit, but I took 200 guitar lessons and I became a pretty good guitarist mm-hmm. so, enough so that you know, I was able to play in the church band when I got out and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, um, and that made the time go fast. I'm sure it did. Um, and um, and then for my spirit, I, I got, you know, kind of thrown into religion, into God. And I, I kind of really started to explore that. Certainly it was the seeds of what my decisions were a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for my body, mostly I decided what I was going to do is I was going to walk the track. And um, I had made a decision I wasn't going to get into anything that um, I, where I could get hurt. I yeah. You play. don't want to get hurt in prison. There's a lot of guys, you know, playing softball and that and they break ankles and wrist and yeah. Yeah. No, but, but walking seemed right. And, um, I just kind of did the math and I thought if I walked 10 miles a day times for a year, that's roughly the same distance as walking from New York to Los Angeles. Yeah. And so what I did was, um, I went into the, uh, the library, the prison library, and I got a, I got a, uh, um, a road atlas, and I actually charted the. I like the, that. The as you were walking, <laughs> I love and, that. And and then, and then every day where I would see is where ten miles would take me, or as close to it. Yeah. Because you know you had to flip the pages to get to the each state yeah. and everything, and I would learn about as as much as I could from that from that location about uh, about where I was uh, vicariously and I, it was fascinating. Oh, that's a great walked, escape for the mind. I love that. Oh, I walked Akron, Ohio yeah. and then down Nashville, Tennessee and then across to Memphis and then Little Rock and yeah. I mean I had a pa- you know I had a path and and while I was walking on the track people would join me. Mhm. And they would say, like, what are you doing today? I said, well, I'm, I'm in the middle of my walk from Nashville to Memphis. <laughs> and, um, and it was just something, you know, it was just something that. Well, and I uh, think, you know, it's, it's interesting for so many different reasons, Jeff, because you have to trick your mind when you're in prison, you have to have yeah. your own escape when you're in prison because where you are is very dull. There's no colors. You know, you have to create yeah. a world around you that hopefully makes you feel more real of, of who you are. So you don't lose yourself in that environment. Yeah. And, and it just became something, uh, all these things I did every single day. And, and, you know, in prison that, um, the days, you know, the days just fly by. 
and this is how they flew by for me. Mm-hmm. Um, when um, I lost um, 65 pounds because I had bulked up before I went to prison. Yeah. I, um, I was in the best shape I'd been in, in a long time. I could actually run 5K. Yeah. Um, I, that lasted for about a week <laughs> after I got out of prison. Yeah, everybody's in the best shape they've ever been. Well, not everybody. A right. lot of people are. And yeah. then they look different a little afterwards. But as you get close to the door and you know your freedom's on the other side, what's, what are you thinking? Well, like, I'm heading out. <laughs> what am I doing? Yeah. Because I know you did a lot. So, I mean, are you thinking about that behind the fence or are you, are you just thinking freedom? No, not, 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 not so much because I knew I was going to a halfway house and I didn't know what that was going to mean. And, and I was, and I was going to live with a friend on home confinement for a while, home confinement back then, not, not cares act type of home confinement. And, um, so there were a lot of logistics Mm -hmm. and, and I was certainly overthinking every one of them, but um, I got through. Um, I got through uh, the halfway house and then home confinement. And I had um, board ordered um, drug and alcohol counseling. Um, I, I wasn't in um, prison long enough to uh, get into RDAP. Yeah. yeah, no. But I, but I, ha- I did have to do the non-residential program. Mm-hmm. And I actually learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot about the uh, about the physiology and psychology and all of that. Yeah. You know, even in, even in AA, you know, it's not like it's a, it's not about education as much as it is support. Right. Right. So um, while I was in uh, drug and alcohol counseling, um, my my counselor said to me, "So what? You know, what's your plan? What are you going to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm going to go to AA and I'm going to have sponsor and sponsees and I'm going to do my thing and." And, um, and he said to me, um, maybe you want to do some things that you can put on a resume. Mm. This is your counselor says that. Uh huh. Yeah. And, and it just clicked. I said, yeah, well, you know, this AA is great, but I, I'm probably going to have to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was lucky that, um, the government had not taken away all of my, uh, all of my money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had kind of a plan that was going to work for a while, but, um, so I went to my rehab, Silver Hill and I, uh, I, I told them I, I could volunteer there and, uh, I told them my story mm-hmm. and it didn't shock them, yeah. but they had still had to do a background check and, <clears throat> but they did it. And two hours later they called me and they welcomed me as a volunteer. And from there I went to another place and volunteered. And then I went to, a, a reentry nonprofit in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And, um, that, that make was, you feel Jeff, I'm sure. I mean, I'm thinking that those type of things that you did the way that you did them at the time that you did them had to really filled you up. Oh yeah. There was no question. I, 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 I knew, um, I even knew from my days in, in AA that I was, um, that I was turning my life over to service. Mm-hmm into the, you know, the, the care of God, you know, higher power kind of thing. But I didn't really, um, you know, it was hard to equate that with, you know, a vocation. Like, yeah. what was I going to actually, um, but, um, I was feeling great about it. And, um, so in the midst of it, um, I, I actually went to, uh, the pastor in the church that I was attending with my wife 
I was talking to her about it, and he said to me, I, I think you should go to seminary. And um, that was a little weird. Yeah, what, was how did you react to that? I didn't even know what seminary was. Yeah. You know, I didn't really know what it was. But it turns out a progressive seminary is mostly about, a lot about social, maybe not mostly, but a lot about social justice. Social justice, yeah. And um, I applied to Union Theological Seminary in, uh, in Manhattan, and I, and I was accepted. And I did that for three years, uh, full time. What was it like, for- Jeff, for you? I mean, you're you're not that far away from your time in prison. You're not that far away from all the other things you're doing. What did that three years feel like to you? Um. Well, first of all, it was 27 years since I graduated law school, so I didn't even know how to read. <laughs> right. You know, and and you know, reading these books by theologians and philosophers. Yeah, it's heavy. Spinning. Yeah. And um, I also didn't want to be known as the prison guy. Yeah. So for the first year and a half, I, I hid that part. Mm-hmm. But um, because of that, I really wasn't having an authentic experience. Or um, and um, and um, I, I didn't know if it was right for me. And I, I wound up talking to a third year student about it. And. Um, and I said, and I said to him, um, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm getting a lot out of this. And he said to me, well, you know, instead of trying to get something out of it, maybe what you want to do is try to put something into it. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was a lesson I'd learned in AA many sure. times, but I just couldn't, you know, I just couldn't translate that. I couldn't transfer that to my seminary experience until that moment. And with that, I just. I just let the, my guard down and uh, I started uh, being of service within the seminary and I ran the, uh, the prison and religion panels and mm-hmm. did all kinds of things like that. And it turned everything around. Very liberating, yeah. Oh, it was fantastic. And then, um, and I was going to AA in the city, yeah. not far from, you know, up in the morning, you know, up, it was up the Columbia campus. So I was, go- I was doing real New York City brand AA at the time and that was just a gift. Um, and so when I came out, I um, I applied for a job at a um, at a church in in the hood in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I knew the pastor because I had been on a nonprofit there. That was the first nonprofit that had invited me to be on the board of directors. Mm-hmm. And um, so I got the job as being the associate pastor and director of prison ministries for this inner city church. And um, uh, it was all Latino and uh, all people of color. Yeah. And um, my my soon-to-be wife, um, were we married yet? Yeah, we were married. <laughs> we were married by that we point. We got it. <laughs> we were married by that point. She, um, we were the only white people there. Yeah. But it was a brand of religion and spirituality that I never really knew about. And it was so beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, I think in in in, in the world of privilege, we just uh, often don't really understand what what real um, what real privilege is. Mm-hmm. You know, what real success is, or real um, and um, you know, and the move from a material way of life to a spiritual way of life was was it, it was in my midst. Mm-hmm. There was no way to deny that that uh, something was going on there. So I was, um, 
I had a blog I was writing at night, like early days of blogs. Mm -hmm. And I was writing a blog. Blogs uh, were like podcasts, really, if you think about exactly. it. Yeah, for, for those of you listening, a blog <laughs> is a pre-podcast. <laughs> exactly. And, um, but I was blogging at night um, about the differences about living in Greenwich, but working in Bridgeport mm -hmm. because um, the two in the whole worlds. country. Yeah, yeah. Those are those are the two most uh, socioeconomically disparate um, communities, same county communities in the country. Mm -hmm. You know, only a few miles from each other. And I was writing about it, and um, I got a phone call from a um, a reporter at a hedge fund magazine, and he said to me, um, he asked me, "Are are you the minister to hedge funders?" Because I've been working with all these hedge funders in AA in uh, in Greenwich. And uh, I said, no, but as soon as it came out of his mouth, I knew that that was my calling. That was my call. Yeah. That was my calling. It was right there. And um, so soon after, my wife and I started, uh, you know, literally the first ministry in the world devoted to people navigating the white collar justice system. I just think it's, uh, you know, you. So many different things happen in people's lives. And then, you know, some people take that and create something that can mean so much. And the fact that you were able to find this path, Jeff, after everything that you'd been through, mm -hmm. um, and you're totally, absolutely, 100% qualified for every single thing that someone would come to you for. And that's such a big deal because yeah. you could tell on the – on the call last night that there are people who desperately are just looking for information. You know, they're getting ready to go in. It's the most yeah. fearful thing in their life that they know, you know, and I always, I do always tell people that nothing is as bad as your mind makes it out to be not even prison. Uh, because what you build up in your mind is, but having someone like you with your background and your intellect and, and your ability to, to tell them and help them, um, Man, it's it's a it's a really big deal, and you know I I I think you know your ability to create that world, and then you were able to get your law license back. Um, which what did that feel like for you? Because that that had to have been like a full cycle, and now you're a, kind of a different type of person doing different types of things, and then you oh here's this law license that I used to have. You, you think, yeah. You, um, um, the decision to get my law license back was definitely a uh, an outgrowth of the ministry and the decision. Um, mostly, I looked at what people needed, yeah, and and what they needed was people to trust mm -hmm. because the whole system is designed to just take everything that you've got. Yep, you know, not just money either. You know, your humanity, yeah. your everything and, and very humbling and, and um i'm sorry my um and 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 just to take people who've been treated like roadkill mm -hmm. and try to bring the humanity in and give them people to, someone to trust and i knew that there was a hole in the market there's just a lot of good criminal lawyers out there mm -hmm. a lot but their job is to get people the shortest sentence they can. I mean, right. basically, that's their job. 
But there's so many other things that are going on when people are, are prosecuted. There's um, civil things and family things and emotional things. And I've been able to deal with a lot of the family and emotional ones, but people's legal issues that they're very concerned about, maybe as much as, as their criminal case sure. of bankruptcies and partnership dissolutions and winding down and divorces and yeah. maybe there are um, so many complicated things. And that's kind of what I had been an expert in my whole life is just all of those, you know, seeing the big picture and helping sophisticated people put that all together. And I'm thinking, wait a second, there's nobody who does this. That's what's so great about it, Jeff, is that you were able to recognize that nobody's doing that. Why don't I fill this, this role? And, and, and so um, it wasn't as if I did no market research at all, because I did. And, and I went to some criminal lawyers who I, I trusted and I, and I respected. And I said to them, I get, you're in big firms, you're in big law firms. Why aren't you providing these resources? Now they do for their corporate clients, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, but for the individuals and small companies, and they didn't quite say this, but what I gleaned was that once the process, the criminal process, once it, once it takes all of the resources from somebody who's going to go to prison. Basically, it takes all their money. Right. Um, there's nothing left to take care of all of the other stuff. And so none of the firms want to get involved in that. Right. Well, so, and, and, I mean, and Jeff, you, you, you've got some unfamiliarity, too, that goes along with it. Some of the things you're talking about with civil and, and bankruptcy, yeah. and those things, there's, there's a legal aspect to that. But... Once that attorney walks you in and you're sentenced, it is you are taking two different paths now. You you are on a path that no real attorney that does criminal defense work really, and he's heard about it, but never experienced it. And there's a big difference of dealing with somebody who's walked actually through that gate in that world, lived those steps. Uh, that can really give somebody a different feeling about how they're going to approach that life and, and how they're going to survive. That's, that's a real big difference. No, that's right. But, and, and even in the legal context that, oh, even within the legal arena, the context of understanding how all of these yes. decisions affect everything else. Smooths all that because, out. Yes. Because you know that, you know, as much as, as well as any of us know that, from the day that you are arrested, life becomes a workaround. Yeah. You, there's, no, there's no way to accomplish what you might want to accomplish without the specter of that problem being right in front it's of right you. right there with you the whole time. All the time. Yeah. But now I've spent 15 or 16 years helping people work their way around those problems. Yeah. And, and the problems are not, necessarily what they think they are mm -hmm. or what they fear they are, mm -hmm. you know, again, within the context of your show, but for most people, the biggest barriers are, are, are themselves. Sure. Um, but also within the, the within the, the actual transactions of what they're trying to accomplish, there's usually ways to accomplish things. They just can't do it on their own. Right. 
They need, they need so, help. <laughs> they need help. Yeah. And so, so here I am now having done this basically for 40 years of my life yeah. and just focusing on people in crisis. Yeah, I was I was always focused on people in crisis. Sure, I, crisis. I mean that's you just switched gears to the the niche yeah. of these people that are in crisis, which is wonderful because you bring all that to the table. And 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 I would say that the big difference for me personally, mm-hmm. I mean, I recognize that it's a huge relief to the clients because they found someone who understands and can really help them. Yeah, and I, I understand that. But for me, the big difference is that I'm I'm not focused on the money anymore. Yeah, you know that's a weird deal. I was afraid when I got my law license back that somehow I was going to become contaminated, or I was going to become sure. Because I mean, you would associate that with your old life of when you were yeah. you know a power player in the legal world and. Not that you're not a power player, you're a power player in a different world. Uh, and, and that's the world that's really helping all these people and you're gathering that journey of your experience. Well, and so, and so, I mean, what a gift, you know, to, to, to treat people fairly and to be expected to be treated fairly in return, as opposed to what I was doing was, trying to get over on somebody. Sure. Even if that was for a living. Yeah. And, um, and now, um, I have, you know, well, you're just uh, truly giving back Jeff. I mean, it's, it's very rarely do I, I wanted to read this quote because very rarely are you interviewed by someone, uh, and, and the, uh, reporter actually gives you a quote back of, and it said, Jeff Grant is the real deal. He's candid and generous with his wisdom. I can't imagine there is a lawyer in this country more qualified to consider the complex issues facing people prosecuted for white-collar crimes in their families. Uh, Evan uh, is the, uh, the reporter from The New Yorker, which, by the way, if you've got a time to go to um, Jeff's uh, website, you can pull the... Uh, New Yorker article, which is just a fascinating article about Jeff's journey and, and what he's doing now. But speaking of journeys, Jeff, I, I, I find you such a fascinating individual just because you have done so many different things and it hasn't mm. been easy. Um, the, <laughs> the, the road has not been a straight line. But of your journey, what do you think is your biggest takeaway from everything that you've experienced? Um, I, I think that, I think there's probably three things okay, that uh, other than, uh, other than mission statement of your, of your program, which is like <laughs> spot on, by the way, you know, that, um, because the, the thing I'm, I, I, I feared the most did turn out to be the, uh, the, the best for me. But, um, I would say that, um, one by far the greatest accomplishment in my life was becoming sober. Yeah. And without that, nothing good could have happened. So true. So, um, took a lot of will. So, yeah. So if, uh, if there's anyone listening to my, my three things, I'm going to tell you one 
sobriety rocks. <laughs> okay, that's a good and, one. <laughs> and 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 I know it's hard. I it's the hardest thing in the world. Yeah. But but if you know if you can uh, do whatever you can do to get into acceptance and and there's a whole new world and a whole new life out there. So that's one. Two is um, the person you marry is the most important decision of your life. Um, I didn't do this alone. I could not have done it without my my wife and partner, Lynn. Mm -hmm. um, we are a team. And um, more than anything, uh, you know, she calls me on my shit. That's just great. And, you know, and, um, and I'm no longer ignoring um, what's in our best interests in order to people please, mm -hmm. or at least not much. Right. The, uh, the, um, that's liberating in itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the codependence thing, we've, we worked our way through it mostly, mm -hmm. but, but we, uh, you know, we're, so I, that would be say I was say number two is who you marry is 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 critical, um, and the third thing is and this is this is the the thing that that I can't believe in kindergarten that you don't learn this live within your means yeah yeah it, the fact that I now live within my means means that I'm I can make any decision I want yeah. I I'm, I don't have I, I, I don't have to do anything. And, you know, and as, and as I was, uh, keeping up with the Joneses and climbing that ladder and, and, lots of I had this kind of, and I had this psychotic thinking that somehow if I got bigger, it would solve my problems as opposed to if I got simpler, it would solve my problems. <laughs> so true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but that's a speech all now, in itself. <laughs> well, maybe it's because I'm in my 60s yeah. now and just life changes. Yeah. But, but good advice. We live a, we live a simple life. Yeah. And, uh, and that doesn't mean it's an unprivileged life because a lot of privileges has come back, you know, especially sure. since I'm a lawyer again mm -hmm. and I'm accepted into, in, into circles that I wasn't necessarily invited into even a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so, so there are. There are in though. I'll you, yeah, Joe. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a quick story because I can really divide my my professional life and the ministry life, by the way, into two things: before the New Yorker article and after the New Yorker okay. article. Because and I think the New Yorker, the New Yorker article was out in twenty twenty one, maybe August thirtieth of twenty one. Yep. So a little less than two years ago. Yeah. So I got my law license back. And very soon thereafter, uh, um, Evan Asnos called about the article, and and uh, and we did the article fast track that summer. And that fall, um, we were coming out of the pandemic, and um, I had joined the American Bar Association mm -hmm. again, and they had their white collar conference in Miami, and I decided I'm gonna. I'm going to go to this conference as a, as a lawyer. Yes. Right. And I was scared to death. I, I can't even tell you how much I thought I didn't know what to expect. I, I, I knew it was all in my head, mm -hmm. but nobody knew who I, nobody cared. Nobody knew who I was, but in my mind, I was building it up to something that was frightening. Yeah. 
So I went and they had a, a committee there that's called the White Collar Committee, which I had signed up for online. And uh, again, I knew nothing about any of this. So um, the committee is meeting and, um, and there's probably 30 people sitting in a room and we're all sitting like in a circle. And the chairperson um, of, the, uh, of the committee, who's a very well-known white collar lawyer, um, says, well, why don't we each go around the room and we'll state our names and where we're from. So one by one, people are going around and they're saying, my name is so-and-so, I'm from Skadden Arps. I'm from so-and-so, I'm from Sherman, Sherman and Sterling. And they're talking about, oh, they're from all these big law firms. <laughs> and, it, and it finally gets to me and I say, I'm Jeff Grant and I spent 14 months in prison for a white collar crime. I love it. Right? Because I, that's, I, I thought <laughs> that's that was the thing. I didn't know what to say. I thought that, and with that, the chairman of the meeting stood up, stood up, pointed right at me and said, you're the guy from the New Yorker. <laughs> and that was it. Yeah. It was like, now I'm the guy from the New Yorker. Yeah. And I've been to many white collar conferences and things. And it's amazing that there hasn't been one person I've met who has been dismissive not one person who hasn't been accepting, um, hasn't treated me like a peer. You know, it was yeah, really- I, I got to tell you, Jeff, I think there's something to that. You're very vulnerable. Uh, you, you don't cut any corners uh, about your story and how you got through things. And I think people really identify with those type of things. Um, you're not defensive. You're just real. And whether you would have gotten in the New Yorker or not, you earned your way into people uh, believing in you and trusting you to help them. And so th there's, there's a, there's a story there all in itself of how you handle yeah. a crisis and who you are through the crisis and, and how people react to you for sure. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for saying that, Brent. I, I, I know that you were able to see a little bit of that last night. And, yes. Um, that, that was a gift having you there. So thank and I, you. I, I love the fact that I was able to do that before we interviewed today because it was just, it gave me a, a real insight to what, what's going on and, and the power of it. Um, but Jeff, man, thanks so much for being here and a guest. And I, I've, I think the listeners are going to get so much out of this. And by the way, if you get something out of this, if just one person gets something out, share it, share it. Share it. It's a big deal. And if, if you guys have time, uh, I know it's kind of a hassle, but uh, leave a review on Apple or on Spotify. It's real easy to do. All you got to do is just scroll down the page. It says write a review, click on it. It's, it's, it, it somehow puts the show on steroids every time we get the reviews and helps promote the show. Um, anybody wants to get a hold of me, brentcasty.com. Remember I spell Casty wrong. It's not like Sean and David. It's with an I T Y. Uh, but yes, follow the show. It'll give you the notifications when we get going. Uh, as I used to say to, uh, my people, when I was typing back and forth from love and stay strong and I'll do the same nightmare success in and out. Jeff Grant. Thanks so much for being and sharing your story. Brent, thank you for having a really beautiful experience. Thank you. Nightmare success in and out. See you all.